0: The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Thompson IM Funds, Inc. For more information about Thompson IM Funds, please visit ThompsonIM.com. Thompson IM Funds, smart investing starts here.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Permission to Succeed podcast. This is your host, Doug Heikkinen. The Permission to Succeed podcast is about learning from and being inspired by people who found that point in their lives or many points in their lives to throw caution aside and just go for it. The genesis of this podcast is based on the great appreciation for the lives of Muhammad Ali and Dr. Martin Luther King and their world-changing impact, entrepreneurs in their day. The Permission to Seed podcast is brought to you by iris.xyz, the most helpful place advisors come to to grow their minds and businesses. Power your advice at iris.xyz. And our guest today in New York, in his offices... (laughs) gracious host of the permission to succeed podcast this week jay Connolly, is ray hennessy who's the president of jay Connolly. not huh? how you doing so far so good thanks for thanks for having me and being here well thank you for letting us be our gracious hosts in the soundproof
0: conference room of your wonderful offices Oh, any any time, We we keep it that way so that people don't hear what we're what we're doing in here. So you know, no one can hear you
1: scream in the soundproofing. Soundproof. And it's an open office space, and you still can't hear people. Yeah, next yeah. to each other. Yeah. That's because we punish them for speaking. So we, <laughs> we just
0: we just keep everybody quiet. Yeah, raise right, right here. No one talk. So
1: so let me run down quickly where you've been: Dow Jones, mm-hmm. Wall Street Journal, CNBC, Smart Money. Fox Business entrepreneur, and and now you're the president here. So that's a lot of stops, and I can't hold a job. I think that's what that says. Maybe, but you've also been around a, a huge amount of
0: entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah. What have you learned? Um, they're all a little crazy. Um, and, and uh, you know, when, when I was at Entrepreneur Magazine, we'd have these big conferences, and I'd get up, up on stage and thank them for being there, and I'd thank them for being insane. Because when you stop and think about it, there is nothing crazier than putting your own financial future solely in your own hands. Um, because it, it's the same thing to go look for a well-paying job, benefits, and a nice commute and and make sure that, you know, your, your bills are paid on a day-to-day basis. It's another thing to do that all yourself and then have, they have to worry about customers to worry about. Um, there's a vulnerability to it that most people don't want to undertake. And, and so you've got to be just a little, little crazy to, to, to want to do that. Um, at the same time, like I think the smartest entrepreneurs know that they can't work in that environment. Um, and so they need to be driven by their ideas and they, they need to believe that other people can't carry them out for them, that they, they have to be the ones to, um, to, to wave the flag. I, I love entrepreneurs because they are really misfits in the world. You know, you, you walk around a, a city like New York and you pass by. All these people who get up at the same time every day and go to work every day and take lunch and, and go home and they allow themselves to have home lives when they end up at home. That doesn't work with an entrepreneur. When you're an entrepreneur, you are an entrepreneur twenty four seven, and it, it's it's not a stable lifestyle for most people. Um, you you have to be very creative. You've got to be, and you know, quite frankly, you got to be a little nuts. And so I I've, I've honored that. It's also why, by the way. 90 some odd percent of, of businesses fail. Um, they, they fail simply because um, it's, it's tough to do. It's really, really hard work that um, you know everybody, what, one of the pet peeves that I've always had being around entrepreneurs is, you know, based on my experience, people will, will come to me and say things like, "Hey, I have an idea for a business." And I say, "Well, stop right there. Right? An idea is not a business, right? Tell, tell me how you're going to build this business. Don't tell me about the idea. And a lot of people don't think that way because a lot of people will sit there at their offices and say, I have this idea for this business and never, ever do it. So I choose to start with the business part of that discussion. And secondly, like, well, if you really, really believe this, you know, idea, will you quit your job tomorrow and start it? And a true entrepreneur will. And say, you know what, you're right. I'm going to make this work. Um, most people won't. Most people will will hear that challenge and say, uh, "No, you're right. It's probably a dumb idea anyway. Uh, let me get back to work. They give me free donuts in the morning and coffee all day. Um, so it's it's a different personality, um, and these folks are a little off, but I love it. So, uh, how does one succeed? <laughs> wow, that's a um, well. You can you can always. <laughs> that's a great question. Um, the word success is an outcome based on your plan so you know the, I always ask people what does success look like for you so everybody's success is different you know there's some the great thing about entrepreneurship here, here in the US is you're not doing it solely to make money in some cases you're doing it because you want a different lifestyle like in some cases you, you look at uh, attorneys right and uh, in, in industries like that like they could work at a big law firm and do very well and put in long hours, or they can put their own shingle up and, you know, be home with their family more. So does success look like, you know, the, the million dollar payouts for these guys? I don't know. For some, it is. So, you know, it, it's... I, I also think that people don't give themselves enough credit for moving the needle in how people think and behave, right? We, we tend to think about success as... Well, do I have attention? Do I have money? Do I have lifestyle? Um, like success is changing people's lives. And, and that means for customers, right? Clients, things like that. It also means for employees. That, one, of, one of the great things about entrepreneurism in general is there is nothing better in the world than giving someone else a job. You have positively affected their life. So the minute you build a business and you can hire one or two people, you have changed the world because you changed their worlds, and that's success. So even if three, four, or five years down the line your business fails, you gave those people that runway to better their own lives, to, to learn things, to possibly parlay that experience into a, a higher paying or better position, or inspiring them to go out and do something on their own too. Um, so success, success is an outcome based on somebody's own feeling. Um, it's interesting this podcast is called Permission to Succeed because most entrepreneurs, most people don't give themselves permission to succeed simply because they don't know what success looks like to them, both in an intermediate stage and in the long run. You know, it, it, at its at its basis, what's success in life? Like I always go back to that famous you know, comedian David Brenner who used to say, uh, I don't know how old I want to be. When I die, but I, I just know that I want the first line of my obituary to be the world's oldest and richest man died today. Right? Um, to you know, to him that that that's a reasonable view of success. You know, but and and success is also not a I don't think that success is a black and white kind of thing. I, I think for every success there's trade-offs that you make that down the line you might regret. Think about the people who, you know, and I'm by the way, I'm one of these. I've got two older kids who you know, have been with me. My, my oldest daughter right now is 22, so she's been with me for a long part of, of this journey and she's seen sort of her business up and downs. Um, I, I think I, I she thinks that I've done well in life in business and media and things like that. I don't know how she viewed me as a father for the years that it took to, you know, put in the long hours to do that. So did I succeed on a professional level? Sure, did that cost on a personal level? Absolutely, I've been married three times for Christ's sake. I mean, I'm doing some things wrong in my life. So I I, I think success is one of those amorphous kind of words, and if if you're going to give yourself permission to succeed, um, you've gotta define really what that success looks like.
1: So we're gonna stay there on success, and change it just a bit. Do you think, going to marry entrepreneurism there too? do you think that companies and advisories and financial service firms who have the entrepreneurial mindset set themselves up to be successful for a longer period of time? Oh, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. I think, you know, in advisory it's tough to be entrepreneurial because regulators get in the way of entrepreneurs all the time, right? So. You know, I, I'm a firm believer that good entrepreneurs work within constraints really well, and there's more constraints in financial services and healthcare right, than in any other businesses in the world. So, if you come into it with a with a really strong entrepreneurial mindset, you figure out a way around the constraints and you build within those um, very well. But you know, it's it, that. It's also understanding what entrepreneurs... Like, I'm glad that you mentioned entrepreneurial mindset because when I was at Entrepreneur Magazine, we, we, um, philosophically, we were changing the definition of what an entrepreneur was. So traditionally, the audience was, okay, people who own their own business, right? But the fact is, is that um, the entrepreneurial mindset can be applied even when you go to work every day for something. Like, when you think about the creativity, the... um, Willing to break down convention that goes into that mindset. Um, that's important. You can be an entrepreneurial person within a wirehouse if you're an advisor. And I think the most successful practices have shown that. I mean, a lot of these major breakaways that you've seen over the years have been the wirehouses themselves not honoring that entrepreneurial spirit enough, so losing some of their best people. At the same time, there's plenty of very major teams at all these wirehouses. That are tremendously entrepreneurial within the um, within the constraints that both the wirehouse puts on them and the regulators put on them. So I, I think that's a necessary component of uh, of success. So let's let's change a little bit and
1: let's talk about the advisors out there. Mm-hmm. Been very successful for a, for a long time.
0: Yeah. Is that going to continue? No, no. I mean, look, we've had a nine and a half year bull market. Um, yeah. It, 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 Warren Buffett used to always say, like, when the tide goes out, you can see who's naked. And um, I was with Jeff Gunlock a few weeks ago from Double Line, and he said, yeah, Warren Buffett said that, and when this market falls apart, we're going to see a new beach. Because there's a bunch of people who are in, you know, who have spent a decade of their life not having to work. You could put your client's money into index funds and do really well for them. And the way we benchmark success, again, come back to success, like, If I'm a client and there's an advisor, if success is just based on how you do against the benchmark, then it's not hard to meet the criteria of going along with the benchmark because you can invest directly in the benchmark, right? I mean, it's so we've rigged the game so that nobody even knows what success looks like. And I think a lot of people have ridden a bull market that can't last. You know, I grew up in the 70s and early 80s. 1981, here's a little trivia for all your listeners like 1981 what was the peak fed funds rate in 1981 i was
1: in college okay i wasn't paying attention to the fed
0: no really (laughs) 19.4 percent was the fed funds rate and we've been bouncing around zero one two percent for how long now and that's that's like we were in a period of time where i was growing up where you know where we invested? Like I'm from Bayonne, New Jersey, right across the the river here. The only um, like investment we would do was you would put money in a CD, yeah, and you double your money in four or five years, yeah, because the interest rates were through the roof. And that was an environment that I grew up in, and it was bad. Like when you lost a job, you had trouble getting another job. You didn't have full employment like we we've, we've had really consistently. I mean, the numbers aren't full employment. We've had spikes and everything. But really, going back to like the, the early 90s, the employment picture has been pretty good in this country. You haven't had people having to struggle, and the markets have helped that and all this other stuff. But it's not, it doesn't last because we go through these protracted periods where it's hard to make money. So the advisors who are smart enough to know that that's coming... And are preparing their clients in a way that says, "I know you want a lot of upside, but we need to protect you from the downside that's coming." They'll do okay, but I, I, I don't get the the impression that there's a lot of um, impetus to have the tough conversations with their clients in good time, which I think is a, in good times, which I think is a failure of of wealth management
1: in general right now. So, what's the opportunity in the, for the next gen in private wealth?
0: From the advisor standpoint or the client standpoint,
1: the advisor standpoint. Yeah,
0: I I, I really do believe that if you can um, take up the mantle of creating the next generation of high net worth by investing in younger people, emerging wealth, um, not ignoring that, um, I think you you're going to succeed because you're going to grow with them. Um, I I think that if you if you stop trying to go after high net worth and ultra high net worth that exists now and start preparing people for a new era of how we think about investment and how we do investment and what investment means like a good example is so I wrote the IPO column for the Wall Street Journal for like four or five years in the height of the IPO boom years. Uh, we had 9,000 some odd stocks, 9,000, 10,000 stocks. You've got, you know, what, 4,000 now. So the supply of equities is down. So how we even think about investing has to change. Um, you know, you've got a, a very freaky bond market right now. I mean, last, last year, GE couldn't, couldn't sell a bond and it cut, shut down the entire corporate bond market, right? So a very, very fragile bond market, very, very um, uh, you know, low supply in, in equities. And yet, a tremendous opportunity, I think, if you're a financial advisor, to put people in, in more illiquid things like direct investment, real estate, things like that, that are more difficult conversations to have, but for a younger investor with a longer time frame will make them very comfortable down the line. Um, so I think that's the opportunity is, is rethinking what your role is. I mean, when you think about the best wealth advisors, they're, and I don't like wealth management because... Like, like, I know that that term's in, in play, but it's not about the finances, it's about the outcomes. So you set the right goals for people, and, and you put the right products in front of them, and you, you know, you're not afraid to take risks with a part of that portfolio, and you're not afraid to, to um, avoid risk for, for other parts to, to protect them. I think you'll, you'll be smart, but you have to think about what investing is, if, uh, which has changed. You know, changed dramatically over the last few years. Speaking of changing
1: dramatically, what the heck is media today?
0: Oh my God. Yeah, no, I, it's, it, it's funny. I, uh, when I got into. Uh, I'll, I'll, two things here, if you'll permit the long longish answer. One is the audience has changed, the expectations have changed. So my, my first uh, journalism job was at the uh, Trenton Times in Trenton, New Jersey. And um, I, I remember writing a front page story about a murder. I was a police nighttime police reporter, and they put it on the front page. I was so proud of this. It was a Saturday and Sunday morning. I'm the only one in the, the whole building, and the phone starts ringing off the hook. And I'm like, oh, great. And I have a great response to the community. I pick up the phone, and I said, you know, Times Newsroom. And They said, yeah, my, the circulars weren't in my paper today. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I'll make a note of that. And every time I picked up the phone, it was the same people. For whatever reason, the production people had stopped putting the coupons in. And so I, I, I said at one point to this nice, I wish I knew who she was, but the lovely woman who called me up and said, what the hell am I supposed to do with the newspaper if the coupons aren't there? And I said, madam, maybe you didn't see the fine front page story that I wrote today. Like, have you considered reading it? And as I look back on that story, it, it horrified me. Um, and w- what, I, what I think back on is that was the only uh, contact I ever had with readers, when I was working just for a newspaper. We didn't have contact with readers. We didn't care about readers. We cared about the story. Fast forward to like digital, um, I remember when you know we, we launched WSJ.com and we had comments on our stories at first and we weren't allowed to join in the comments. Same thing with like Smart Money. We had tons of comments in chat rooms and everything. We weren't allowed to engage with the audience. We could hear what they said. We discounted 90% of them because we thought, well, they're wrong. We're right, we own the newspaper, right? Um, now we're to the point where those audiences, those readers, have access to creating their own media in ways that we used to have as gatekeepers in media prior. So, you know, it usually, there, there was that old line, i never get into a fight with people who buy, you know, newsprint by the barrel or rink by the barrel. By the, barrel. Um, the audience has that. And if you're a restaurant and you see a Yelp review, the people who are deciding what your media is are the people who didn't get their meal served the right way that they, they wanted and are complaining about it and giving you a single star and they're calling you miserable names online, right? That, that, so, so the way that people communicate and get um, information is more engagement-driven, it's more audience-driven. Tremendous opportunity for brands to, to, to connect directly with people. Don't get me wrong, that's great. But a diminishment of traditional media. So what we have is the irony of a renaissance in storytelling because anybody can tell a story at the expense of a decline in what we used to call traditional media. And so that changes how you have to position brands in this environment. It also raises the prospect that there's a lot of bad and false information. If somebody wants to say, you know, you're a pedophile, or if somebody wants to say that you you robbed a bank or something, they can just do it, right? And they could put it out as a tweet, and it could affect you. And we've seen a number of like CEOs and things like that, where ex employees are writing things about them online and spreading things on social media. And your your first instinct is to say, well, that isn't true, so I'm going to discount it. But then that stuff can spread like wildfire. There's a lot of bad information that spreads very, very quickly. And so you've got to attack it. You've got to create your own counter media to correct a lot of the false information that's out there. But there's not only a lot of bad media,
1: there's a lot of negative media, scary media. I just moved out of Los Angeles mm-hmm. um, a couple months ago and but if you watch the local news there, it was shooting car chase, you know, sensationalized over and over again. You go to CNN.com, and all the stories are, you know, negative tone, negative tone, negative tone. So, isn't that what media's become? It's just a sensation. Media was always that way.
0: I mean, the media in in the late eighteen hundreds started a war, started the Spanish American War off a of bad rumor. I mean, if you if you look at it, you know, we're here in New York, where you know. Um, Right over the river in Weehawken is where um, Aaron Burr shot Alexander Hamilton. And he shot Alexander Hamilton because Alexander Hamilton used the New York Post to say Aaron Burr was sleeping with his own daughter. So, you know, media has always been used for causes. And, you know, when people say, why is the media no negative, it's so negative? My answer has traditionally been, why do audiences love that better than the positive stuff? They do. You know, and and it actually works in conjunction with each other, too, because I'm a firm believer in reputational reclamation. I guess I'm in the right job here working at a PR firm. But, like, I believe that this is a country of second chances and third chances and things like that. And the reason I believe that is as a journalist, I took part in tearing people down. And I also took part in building them back up again because people love a comeback. Well, you can't have a comeback until you've beaten the hell out of them to begin with, right? And so that's just the nature of how we consume media. And I also think, like, uh, you know, and there, I think there was, like, psychological studies done on this in, in the past, but I'm, either that or i making it up for the sake of a good story, but either way, um, you know, people like to watch other folks' tragedies to make their own lives feel a little better, we like to see other people fight because it takes us away from the fights that we have. So when you see, you know, big political fights or you see the just horrible stories about terrible human beings in conflict with one another, conflict always makes a good story. It, it captivates us because even if I'm fighting with my wife, the one thing we have in common that we can share is that we much rather see other people suffer than ourselves, and so that's one of the reasons that people have been attracted to like the most negative media. And so it's really tough to get that that good story out there. But all good stories are based on redemption. All good stories are based on finding a way um, finding a way to see the good out of what was previously a bad story. So no one does. That's why nobody does the story of the cat that doesn't climb up the tree, right? Uh, because, you know, that there's no conflict there. And, and that's always been the case in media forever, for history. As long as people have been printing things, they've been using it as a vehicle to attack other people or tell awful stories about other people, because that's what sells newspapers, that's what sells media. The, the difference now is that in the last 15 years, everybody's been able to join in on it. They've been able to create their own media. So you look at hyper-local media, you have, go to these neighborhood sites... It's fascinating when people are talking about their neighbors and fighting and all this other stuff. That's media. That used to be the purview of letters to the editor in old newspapers 30, 40 years ago. Um, So in in that way, media's instincts haven't changed. It's just the prevalence
1: of it that has. So here you are on the other side of that where you represent clients in a multifaceted way Mm -hmm. where you have to get good stuff out in the media things of what they're doing, things about helping advisors, things about helping consumers. So how do you fight the negativity that seems to be the grandstanding stuff with positive things that you want to put out there?
0: You're careful about where you put them uh, into the conversation. I mean, it starts there. They're, they're, I know I sound negative about the media, but I, I want to preface that by saying, I do believe we are in this renaissance of storytelling. So you can get what you want now in terms of stories more than you could before. So it's easy. If, if you want to learn, like, you know, I made paella for the first time in my life on Sunday. And I had in a walk, because my wife for some reason bought a walk. Why we need to walk, no one knows, but I figured, well, we have a walk, I'm going to make paella. You go online, 20 stories about how to make paella in a walk. 20 years ago, I would be clueless how to make paella in a walk, right? So the, wait, wait, how did it turn out? It was fabulous. It was really, really good. I'll, good. I'll give you the recipe later. But uh, I can get it online. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so think about if you're an advisor, right, and you're a successful advisor or you want to be a more successful advisor, so you want to know what are some of the entrepreneurial tips, what are some of the best practices in practice management, like what are some of the best um, investment choices other people that you admire have made. Um, there is media designed to simply deliver those messages so in trade media things like that where even even a podcast like this this is designed as something to tell to tell that that maybe 10 to 15 percent of the advisor community that actually cares that actually wants to grow that actually wants to be better right now how to do it so we go we put our companies in those situations and avoid kind of the kind of the fights um and and So you have to be very, very selective about where you, where you put people. There's, there's also folks that are just as by nature of who they are as people, um, relish the fight. They like to be controversial. They like to be in the middle of all these conversations. And in that case, we, we throw them right in because we know we can handle that. In other cases, we protect them from, from that. And, and so it's a, it's a case by case basis, um, you know, all of this has me thinking about, like, brand, right? And, and particularly for financial advisors, brand is very, very important. And, but before you come up with a name, um, you have to come up with your values. And, and where media today gives us an opportunity that you didn't have before is you can tell your own story in a way that you, you don't need a third party to tell it for you. So the prevalence of blogs or podcasts like this and things like that allows you to add your voice to the media conversation in a way where you can lead with your values, which is not something that most journalists would ever ask you. Like, but when you think about it, like what you do is only part of the equation. Like what you do plus what you believe equals who you are, and that's your brand. So you can really lead with values in a way to attract your own audiences, create your own media around you in a way that you couldn't do before. And I think that's going to become more and more important for people who really care about growth and really care about brand and really care about serving, serving their clients. You grew up with very high expectations, didn't you? Um, in, In the end, so I was raised primarily by my, grandparents and um, I, I, it, it was interesting it, there was always the, the one expectation was you'll work hard right and, and, and that was a great expectation like you could forgive making mistakes you could never forgive not showing up for work you could never forgive laziness um, and in the end like and we, we started by talking about what, what success looks like like the expectation was just to be successful. To, you know be a successful husband father um, you know uh, build something right uh, what what was not there were the expectations that it would be a linear journey that always went on so growing up there was a lot of permission to fail there was a lot of um, there, there was a lot of emphasis on the experience part of growing up that's pretty unique um, yeah, I, I, I guess so. I mean, again, like I, I grew up in Bayonne, New Jersey, you know, where the American dream went to die, right? And, and so you, you had a bunch of people who were like really, you know, struggling to um, to, to keep the jobs that they had. Um, you know, my, my friends came from working class backgrounds and the difference, you know, differences that, that they had is, you know, who, whose parents were on. Um, unemployment longer than others, um, and as a, as I'm thinking and saying that, we didn't have the luxury of 26, 52 week unemployment back then. Like you lost your job, you had a couple of weeks, and then you were you were struggling, right? So the the idea that um, the the one value that you needed was to work at it um, was was important. But I think there was just always an expectation that um, you know success was available to those who worked hard. Um, but it would never necessarily come easy to you to to get there, no matter how hard you work. So, um, you know, I, I, I was, I was blessed with that, um, you know, growing up and, and it, 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 it allowed me to be, um, to allow myself to be more creative, to work through ideas and thinking without trying to be right all the time. If, if when, when I've gotten into trouble in life, it's, because I felt that my thinking or my behavior or my work or my ideas were flawless. And um, I sometimes, when <laughs> every so often like, I come up with what I think is a really good idea or plan or strategy. And when I love it so much, I need to stop myself and try to tear it apart. Because, um, you know, I, I, I have to, you've got to doubt yourself a little more to, to really, truly be successful and and creative. So we're going to finish on entrepreneurs
1: again Mm. for all those struggling entrepreneurs out there that are dying to give themselves permission to succeed. What would you tell them?
0: Uh, Three things. Uh, Number one, uh, it may not be right for you and that's okay. You know, um, not everybody can be successful as an entrepreneur. And so you've got to give yourself, while while this is about permission to succeed, you also have to understand that um, you can't keep doing the same thing over and over again, getting the same result and and thinking that it's going to work this time. Um, Number two is um, having said that, if you do feel that you you can succeed, it does take work, it takes commitment, it takes sacrifice. So are you making the right sacrifices to succeed? Um, and and I, I don't think people think about success in terms of the trade-offs that come with that. Um, and they should, and they should be willing to go through what that calculation looks like. And the third thing is that, instead of thinking about big changes, we're enamored with the idea of pivot in the entrepreneurial world and the corporate world, when in fact it's usually the, the small changes um, uh, that you make that that lead to great results. Um, if you think about small changes, you can make in habits, business, behaviors, things like that. You'll generally have a tremendous success. I, I, there, I used to tell the story a lot more because the two players got into trouble, um, but I worked at, at Fox for six years, and one of the stories that Roger Ailes used to tell about Bill O'Reilly, um, again, both of them have since had some reputational issues around them. Um, but one of the stories that he told was when they first started Fox News, Bill O'Reilly's show was called The O'Reilly Report, and it was on at 5 p.m., and they hired uh, Bill O'Reilly from Inside Edition, and he was going to have this big show, and it was a complete, utter failure. No one watched this. And it was, it was, a, it was problematic for them. Um, and Al said he watched it one night when he was eating dinner, and he said, why the hell would anybody want to watch this madman while they're eating dinner? Let's move him instead of canceling him, which they were considering. Let's move him to 8 p.m. when everybody's digested their meals. And we'll call it something different. Nobody wants to here and report. We'll call it like the factor. So we'll change the name to the O'Reilly factor. And we'll move it to 8 p.m. And he did that. And we'll give it another shot. So didn't change the format of the show or the personalities or anything, just move the time slot, change the name. And it became the most watched show on cable television, and those were not major changes he had made. And um, you know uh, there, there are very very small changes that you can make that yield very very big results. And and again, if you're willing to look for those and those achievable changes, you can get some really really good long term successful results. So, if people want to work with Jay Connolly, how do they find you guys? Uh, you can go to jayconnelly.com. That's jconell um, And, uh, you know, we're, we're happy to uh, to work with anybody. Right, Ray.
1: Ray, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks, Doug. For everyone at iris.xyz and the Permission to See Succeed podcast team, this is Doug Heikinen. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Thompson IM Funds, Inc. For more information about Thomson IM funds, please visit ThomsonIM.com. Thomson IM funds, smart investing starts here.